This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi, this is Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We've had a break for a while, so it's nice to get back to casting. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think it's nice to have a little bit of a break. It gives us time to think about some of these things in more depth so that we can present them and hopefully have it be very useful. And a lot has been going on. You know, we've both uh, been reading the book Down Girl by Kate man. Uh, and I, we wanted to talk a little bit about that today and some of the things she talked about in that book. Yeah, she brings up a very interesting concept. Well, she brings up this concept about redefining misogyny. And I think it's really made a difference in the way I'm thinking about things. And it's given me a new frame. And so I thought it would be fun to share with our listeners. Yes. And, you know, I too got a lot out of it. Um, it was first referred to in the New York Times in a review in an article, and they thought it was a very thoughtful way of looking at it. And it's useful, I think, for us as therapists to understand misogyny well. And she defines it really as two separate arms, sexism and misogyny, that are really support engines to protect and support the patriarchal system. Right. And I think that frame is very helpful because what she talks about is that before misogyny, or even still now, but before forming her own ideas and doing research on it, she was saying that we often look at misogyny from a psychological standpoint, which means that we're attributing it to individuals. And misogyny was defined in a way where when you were talking about it, it was just, you know, anger or hatred towards women, all women in general. And it doesn't really fit the picture. It doesn't fit the statistics. It doesn't fit the way misogyny really is operating in our society. And so what's really helpful about this frame is it it helps to separate out how come certain women are targeted? Why are certain groups more targeted with this anger, with this hatred, with the hostility? And so the shift she made is is what you're talking about, seeing it really as more of a social construct and having it be the arm of the patriarchy. So the way she defines it, I think, is really great because she talks about it being a property of these social environments and that it's really in these social environments where people, particularly women, encounter the hostility because it is about enforcing and policing the patriarchal norms. So women who follow along with supporting male dominance, they aren't targeted with this hostility. But women or men who step out of line, quote unquote, and are not supporting this idea, they are the target. 
And it, it helps us. I think we've talked uh, a great deal, you and I, in these conversations about how such a large percentage of women could have voted for Donald Trump when he has such a, a negative you know, perception, really, about women and women's roles. And uh, yet they vote for him, they continue to support him, and you see them out there really as a group actively supporting him, even at this time, you know, when so much has come out about recently about harassment and sexism. Right. And we talked about Roy Moore and how anybody could vote for somebody with the kind of background that he has. And I think this kind of frame really helps you understand or at least put into perspective what might be going on. Yeah. Combining this, not only in the past few weeks have we been reading Down Girl, and I'll mention the author again, Kate Mann. And just for those of you who will try it, I think it's a very valuable read, but it is a bit dense. And you and I've worked hard, I think, to make it really explainable and, and out there. It's very important, I think, for those of us that are trying to understand misogyny right now and what's going on in our country. But I also had the pleasure of taking a trip to the South and spending some time there in a country, I won't call it Trump country, because there's so many different voters everywhere. But uh, it was in a part of the South where I was visiting family and friends and uh, felt very welcomed and, you know, Southern hospitality continues. But I noticed things differently this time than I have before in other visits. And in several of the little cafes and restaurants we were in, there were many televisions playing simultaneously stations devoted to really extolling the praises of President Trump. And uh, there was a, an unwillingness uh, on the part of the people that I encountered to really talk about or converse about the situation, almost as if they were afraid of what I might say, of what they might be forced to say. They felt on the, to me to be on the defensive. And it was, uh, you know, a difficult communication. And conversations didn't easily happen, at least around this whole political area. And I thought about this book and how, you know, a culture can develop where it's reinforcing a traditional, in this case, patriarchal view, and supporting really some of these issues around how women are treated and, uh, and treated badly, and that women are really part of this structure to enforce and to support this unfortunate poor treatment of women. Yeah, I think that is the hard part. And that's one of the things that Kate Mann brings up is that this, that misogyny is really designed in some ways to keep women separated from each other. And so they get separated into the good women and the bad women, often morally ascribed as well, not just behaviorally. And it keeps women from coming together to work to dismantle the hierarchy because then some of the men that are being propped up by patriarchy can point and say, well, this woman doesn't agree, so obviously it's not all women. And, and so I think it's very important to consider these different factors. I think the other one that you bring up that's really powerful is really those conversations, that silencing is really a mechanism of misogyny and the patriarchy. And so by creating an environment where it's not safe 
for you to express these different views where the pressures to fit in and be quote unquote one of the good ones outweighs your ability to build those bridges and connect, it makes it very hard to change things, which is the whole idea behind hierarchy is the mechanisms are designed in many different facets to keep things as they are. Right. And one of the things that that Kate talks about, and I saw is uh, in my trip in the South, is that women are very engaged in work activities. And if you keep women involved in working, caregiving, caretaking others, they're very busy. And uh, it becomes very hard then to even have the time to have those conversations or even more so the time to change or push for change in a social system, you know, if you're very busy, you know, and you're kept busy all the time. And Kate Mann's very clear about all the work, the additional work that women do with children, the additional work women do in the households. Now women are working outside the home, all of this. And women like myself are working to connect our families in the more grandmotherly roles. So we've got that job and we're traversing the country. I met other grandmothers on the road, so to speak. But that group is out there, again, doing additional work. This is not to say that some men aren't doing this work too. A lot of men are, but there is a system in place to really prevent change for women. Right, exactly. And I think another thing I took away from the book that really helped me look at things differently is Kate Mann talks about how it's not so much that misogynist men don't view women as people. It's that they do view them as humans, but she says you have to switch it into thinking their view of women is as human givers. So as long as women are giving to the men who are seen as dominant, then they are, quote, one of the good ones. And so it's really about what you're talking about, that constant giving and women, the hostility towards women is directed when they're, you know, seen as not giving enough or not giving to the right people, not giving in the right way or not given in the right spirit, meaning in goodwill towards the men who are dominant. And it's just, it's been so helpful for me to look at this in my own personal life, but also with my clients and understanding a lot of the challenges that they face and how to navigate it. So in one of the interviews I was reading that Kate Mann did, she does bring up, she one of her strengths is being able to break this down into a logical frame, but she isn't necessarily one to develop the solutions. So I think it's really powerful. She's talking about, you know, you need the theory, but you also need the action. So here she is providing us with this framework. And I think as therapists, we can think about how can we put some of these into action? How can we translate understanding what is this hierarchical frame, how misogyny is the arm of patriarchy or one of the arms of patriarchy? And how can we help use that to foster change in the society and in our clients? 
And some of the ways that we've already talked a lot about on our podcast of promoting change in a positive way are first our conversations, to get it talked about, to talk about what the actual problems are in a non-blaming way, because I think it's very hard for people to hear it if it comes with a lot of blame and anger attached to it, though we often feel that, you know, from the other side of it. So I think those conversations are important. Then another way, and it's illustrated by another writer today, Isabel Robinson has written a piece that's out there online, and uh, it's in the uh, New York Times op-ed page today. She is a student at the high school in Florida where the young man, Nicholas Cruz, shot so many of his former classmates and other students. Um, her, she really brings up pushing for change within the system and says that, uh, you know, the adults have to take their role in this and uh, really look at the fact that they didn't provide uh, limits and mental health care for Nicholas and appropriate disciplinary action. And instead, they expect the students at the school to have reached out to him and made him feel included. And she talks about everything she did as a fellow student to make him feel included, to take care of him. She was a tutor of his, even as a fellow student. She reached out in friendship on several occasions. And young people by themselves, without the adult partners at the top of the hierarchy, have a lot of trouble making change happen. But I think the key point is a group of young people speaking out can push for change. They're there actively. That group from that high school is trying to work on that. They're pushing for gun control. They're pushing for a, a whole range of changes in the patriarchal system. So joining together as a powerful group is really a second way, apart from conversations, to make change happen. Well, that's what I was just exactly going to underscore is that idea of you have a group of youth and they have a lot of energy and they have a lot of drive and they need help with resources and getting their voices out and they need the adult support. And it's really that balance between adults not taking over, but really supporting and amplifying their voices. And I think we've seen with March for Our Lives this happening. And that has been really wonderful to see people coming together and and using their voices and not allowing themselves to be silenced. Because as I said before, silence is one of the huge mechanisms in which change is prevented. And that, I think, offers a third clue about what we can do. Silence is often maintained through fear. Right. And if looking at the fear and the anxiety that men and women have around speaking out in these situations. And I think many women are not only exhausted by the caregiving workload that they're doing, but they're afraid to speak out because they want to be like, they want to please the man. They're afraid of really bucking the system. It's hard to do. And you get an angry, negative response back. But it's very important that you speak out and address some of these things. And a lot of my female patients, you know, of course, many of them are in California, but I really FaceTime people all over the country. You know, you're really facing struggles in this area. How do you speak out in small ways on a daily basis? 
And I think that's a good thing too, to take it from a larger frame and really bring it into more of a personal frame because it that really is how it operates is it's operating on a large scale, but it's also operating in our daily lives and especially in the lives of our clients. And I think a big part of it is, you know, understanding that these things show up maybe not in the same way, but the same underpinning theory or the same underlying hostility is there. And, you know, a big thing I hear from my clients is, oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be seen as bitchy. I don't want to be seen as the outspoken one. I don't want to be seen as unsexy by these people. And I noticed that one of the biggest ways, especially in schools, that a lot of these misogynist, hostile comments are dismissed or what is the right word? Like just not are excused is they're framed as a joke. You know, so this person obviously isn't joking, but they'll say, oh, I just meant that as a joke. You can't take that as a joke. You can't take a joke. Like you have no sense of humor, you know? And I think it's really, really important to get back to how that all fits into this frame because it's a huge part of the silence. The whole commentary, you know, when you confront people, you know, about behavior that you feel is offensive or abusive, you know, it's often, you know, reframed as a joke and, you know, the blame is put back on the person who's confronting it. But I think really to stand firm at that point, point out that it's not funny, tie it into your personal feelings about it, you know, at least it gets that conversation going in your own point really imparted. And I think what you said, Jennifer, to realize that many men and women who are enforcing the patriarchy, you know, they don't personally hate women, but they're enforcing a point of view that they've really been, I'm not going to use the word indoctrinated with, but certainly accepted. And so you've got it's to- internalize. Yeah, you've got to be able to, to bring up questions to say that you think differently and to really- uh, say that this way of looking at things is very hurtful to you. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's such a multi-layered process because first you have to understand as we are opening our awareness with the help of Kate Mann, you know, you have to understand the bigger picture, but you also have to understand, okay, so I understand this concept. How is it applying to my life and how can I keep from being a part of this system. And I think that's the, that's the balance, that's the struggle, is you have to be able to have the awareness before you can make any of these choices and, and the change. And I think that awareness comes from conversations. It comes from reading and it comes from discussions about, hey, I read about this. What do you think about this? Yeah. I think also a, a lot of our podcasting, we talk about young people and we brought up the high schooler Isabel Robinson and her article. I think in what we say and what we don't say, we really role model for young people. So in families where men and women don't speak out, you know, against, uh, you know, sexist ideas, they're really then reinforced as normal. And the young people hear parents not speaking out, and they too adopt that pattern. So you're hearing it on the television and the radio, then you hear your own parents not say something about it. 
and you accept it as this is part of the culture, this must be right. And as you point out, it becomes internalized in young people. And that's why I think we also have to really recognize that it's happening in schools. I forget the study. I think you had mentioned it in one of our episodes, but they were looking at sexual harassment in elementary school. Yes. And I think for, I know at least if I brought that up with some of my clients, they would not believe that that was possible. You know, how is it possible that the, it's just elementary school. But it's because these ideas are around and kids are taking them in. And that's why I think we need to start engaging in these conversations earlier on so that kids can build a framework for how to deal with the situations that are going in in their lives. And that's a lot of the work that I do when I'm working with elementary school kids Mm -hmm. in my office. But outside of that, there isn't a lot of that going on for them. And for those uh, listeners who are interested in reading more about it, Nan Stein at Wellesley is probably, I think, in, in the forefront and has been for decades in investigating and partnering with Seventeen Magazine to do studies on sexual harassment in elementary and middle and high school. But it begins very, very early, and it's not addressed. It's by the teachers. Um, it's not followed up on by the parents of children who are engaged in it because they think the behavior is normal from their children. Well, they take it as a joke. Right. And so this whole system is really enforced, you know, and begins to be enforced at a very early age. So I think that's an important reason really for us to change it because we see our children really being pulled into it. You know, I'd wager it's happening in preschool as soon as kids can talk. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I bet it is. And I, I think it's it's really about how do we come together as a community to work to dismantle that hierarchy, because it's the only way that things can really change. But instead of thinking about it as this big picture, let's dismantle the hierarchy, what can you do in your day to day to to make these shifts, to either engage in a conversation with this about somebody or call somebody out when you see that they're behaving in a way that's not okay. Not letting somebody get away with saying, oh, it's a joke when it clearly isn't. All these small things add up into the bigger picture. And and then also for generations to partner, it's really what Isabel Robinson is calling out for. It can't just be the young people saying something's got to change. There's got to be partnership from everyone to really make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful topic, another interesting one to come back to. And I think we'll continue to talk about this because it's a struggle, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think we'll come back to this and not just because it's ongoing, but also because Words are very important. And so being able to define words and being able to look at how they're being used, whether or not they're being weaponized, I think all these things play into our sexuality and our sexual lives because of how they end up defining how those things operate in our own lives. And if one gender is really, you know, put down in a very decisive way, you know, it's really everybody loses with that. So I think it's really important to see that it can change and we can work together to make it happen. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.